Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I just to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. But I think it was done behind doors. I think when it came out into the, the raw openness of social media and and the creation of that space in today in today's times, I think it was just so brutal and so in your face that people uh, realised that um, that something had to be done. I mean, and I think that that's true for lots of people. But when you see it in black and white on TV uh, with no no hold, no holes barred, then you're compelled to have to do something about it. The challenges of addressing over-representation in the criminal justice system when Aboriginal legal services are underfunded. And Biting the Clouds, a butchler perspective on the historic regulation of Indigenous people. One of the more interesting aspects of this legislation was that it was amended in 1901 and there were new laws introduced to outlaw Chinese and Aboriginal people marrying and having children. And that was because Europeans in Queensland were afraid of an alliance between Chinese and Aboriginals and uprising against white patriarchal society. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The Black Lives Matter movement seemed to galvanise the entire country, bringing renewed attention to the issue of Aboriginal deaths in custody. But Indigenous people are still dying at a rate of one a month. Dennis Eggington is the CEO of the Aboriginal Legal Service of Western Australia, and he's been a long-time advocate for reform of the system. And he joins me now. Dennis, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you very much. Good to be back on the show. It's been a while since we last caught up with you. What's 2020 been like for you? Because it's been a crazy time for all of us. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, it has been. And of course, uh, through, throughout the pandemic and the uh, the COVID scares, we've, we have had the Black Lives Matters uh, uh, movement. And, you know, we, we gathered about 10,000 people over here in the West. And when I looked out on the crowd, it was just huge. But um, so many non-Aboriginal people there supporting uh, the whole world with, you know, Black Lives Matter. It's quite extraordinary, wasn't it? I grew up going to protests. But I think we always celebrated if we got about 40 people there to see the numbers <laughs> that turned out was, as you say, quite overwhelming. Why do you think this moment has hit? Now, you've been advocating for these issues. Um, you know, almost every time a case comes up, you've been raising awareness through your role at the Aboriginal Legal Service there in WA, through your role as a leader in the community. What do you think came together to make this moment uh, that saw so many people take it on as an issue? Look, I think if if it was one thing, I think it was the brutality of the shootings that were happening in um, in America. We certainly knew from earlier on in in our movement to try to get a royal commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody that things were happening where and we knew that people weren't all dying because they were sick so but I think it was done behind doors I think when it came out into the the raw openness of social media and and the creation of that space in today in today's times I think it was just so brutal and so in your face that people uh, realized that um, that something had to be done I mean and I think that that's true for lots of people but when you see it in black and white on TV uh, with no no hold, no holes barred, then you're compelled to have to do something about it. 
This spotlight's now on an issue that the community's been raising all along. And, you know, obviously there's, as you say, renewed conversations about it. But from where you sit right at the coalface, are you seeing any practical changes as a result of that increased um, scrutiny, or this increased interest in the issue? Or do you think that might flow later? Are you positive or are you confident that there might be changes as a result? You know, we were, we were very confident uh, some time ago when... Uh, we had a police commissioner that showed that he cared. He actually had a had a tendency to tell people that he did have Aboriginal family, came out and apologised, and all of his senior police fell in line with him and they were uh, making all the right sounds and noises. And to this day, I still have got a lot of time for a number of very senior police, including the commissioner here in WA. But, you know, when you do work at the legal service, you, you see it. You know, just the other day, there was a police officer sitting in the children's court waiting to arrest a child who is already facing the, the magistrate. And you know, one of our lawyers had to say, look, you know, you, you, you're not allowed to arrest children in this court. He said, well, I'll wait outside and I'll grab them as soon as I get outside. So that's the sort of stuff that happens on a, on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah, look, unfortunately, um, little has changed at that that level where we clash with the police and the community, um, that war by other means is still still raging quite openly. Um, I'm not quite sure that we'll get change unless we have massive change, social reform of our whole society and um, why colonial interests are still being held above and beyond uh, First Nations people's interests, then there's always going to be this thing happening. I know that um, in your advocacy about those large structural fundamental changes the system uh, needs, uh, you talk a lot about the importance of, I guess, the concept of justice reinvestment, taking funding from building new prisons to programs for young people, etc. It's just wondering if you could share your reflections on how those those seismic shifts should should happen. What what sorts of things do we really need that would make a system different? Particularly when you say we can even have police commissioners who can say things and their hearts are in the right place, but it just doesn't transfer through the system as a whole? No, look, and um, I don't even profess to have any real answers other than, uh, you know, this country needs to embark on a new history, leave leave this one behind and let's get on with some real, real change. Um, in the meantime, yeah, we can have um, uh, programs like the run that's running out in Burke and having good results. I think that anyone who um, is prepared to put money back into uh, social programs that our young people can get into. Um, in our Noongar way, we used to take our young men and young women, the women, the older women took the young girls that at, at a very early age, you know, 10 to 12, and the young boys even between the ages of 10 and 15, and we would nurture them through life and get them through to um, adulthood and, and look after them. And I think that any programs that can do that will make a lot of social change for our mob. It just seems to me that um, those traditional ways of looking at looking after our young people have slipped away on us a fair bit. To that end, uh, I was very pleased to hear the Matu people over here who are um, from the Western Desert area have been 
calling for all of their young people, uh, the police and the courts and everyone, to give the young people back to them so that they can they can do exactly that, nurture them in a very cultural way. So, look, I think that, that there, there are some of the answers um, that can happen. And, of course, uh, unfortunately, we still do have this bleed and read attitude and this law, you know, get tougher on crime uh, policies and things when election times come around and, you know, people are hoodwinked into thinking that, um, you know, jails make people safer and they certainly, certainly don't. People, people aren't reformed in jail. They come out the other end. Um, uh, one of our lawyers over here called the monster factories, um, particularly the juvenile centres. And, and to some extent he was probably right. I mean, it's just, there's no real effort to make to um, have uh, programs, although I've got to say that on a positive note, I've the Inspector for Custodial Services here in WA and of course the inspect we have this great system where we have an inspector that answers to Parliament, not to any government bureaucracy. So and he's got the right of entry to go into any any lock up and um recently he's been into Banksha Hill, the the juvenile centre here in WA and was very impressed by um, some of the programs going on there. But um, you know, that's once again that it's a shame that people have to going to lock, lock up to get that kind of support and help. Last time we spoke, you expressed your ongoing concerns about the funding or underfunding of our Aboriginal legal aid sector. What are the latest developments? And can you talk a bit about what the proper investment in our community-controlled legal services would actually mean in terms of change? It's a difficult question because uh, one thing is that I personally think that it's what's happening in in our polity within our society that that creates the need to have an Aboriginal legal service. I think there are some areas of need where where it's essential, but to uh, to continue for organisations like even like our AMSs and us to have to increase funding means there's something fundamentally wrong in the first place. But um, recently uh, there was a massive change to our legal services. We we no longer um, are funded by the Commonwealth government. Well, in in a way we're not. The, the Commonwealth has given states and territories five years worth of funding for our legal services. Um, there hasn't been a great increase in that level of funding. In actual fact, for an organisation like ours, which services the biggest police jurisdiction in the world, by the end of those five years, the last two years, our funding will be of such limited amount that we're not going to even be able to keep up with inflation or um, offer um, increases in pay to staff, which, you know, our sector is like 30, 30% behind um, the legal aid commissions and and so people um, uh, need other types of of support to be able to come and work for us and and once again you know uh, we offer this whole range of of wealth of experience for young lawyers coming through and they get to do things that they wouldn't get to do anywhere else and get the experience that they need but but yeah now look it is a really real problem Larissa I'm, I'm not I'm not denying that, but um, it's just an indication that things are still wrong out there when our services are so underfunded and and so overworked. You know, we're talking um, people carrying 30 case files uh, at at one time, and that's that's just an incredible amount. You know, some of our courts are having 80 people at the matter at a time. So when you when you go to court, 
you're not talking to someone for 20 minutes or so and getting their side of the story and stuff. You're just saying, uh, yeah, you're here, tick off, you're good, I'll see you in court. And, you know, it 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 denies our people the fundamental human right or the fundamental rights in this society, which are the, those principles that underline the rule of law. They're not, they're just not afforded to us. You know, there's no equality about it at all. One area that you've done a fair bit of work in, I guess a bit outside of your uh, work with the ALS, though not unrelated to it really, uh, is in the work of self-governance, representative bodies, building the Noongar Nation. Why has that been such an important thing? What have you seen in terms of why it's so important for Indigenous people to be self-represented and to have that voice? Well, there's two, there's two things. There's the rights about it, so um, it's our it's an inherent right to be self-governing. I mean, before uh, this country was invaded and and occupied, we governed ourselves. I mean, Wiradjuri people governed themselves, Noongar people governed ourselves, the Yorta Yorta governed themselves, and it's it's just a it, it's just a breach of our rights to not let that happen and you know if we're talking about um, a reformed country then and and entering into a treaty well we're going to have to be ready for that and so that they're sovereign to sovereign treaties they're not they're not a um, subservient set of rules and inclusion into mainstream society we're talking about proper sovereign to sovereign and the only way you do that is to build your strong governance your your government and um and they're the other thing to to all of that, besides the the rights approach to it, is the the evidence that um, in many parts of the United States and elsewhere, where they've been doing nationhood building and getting self government into place, um, there's been great successes where people are economically independent, their uh, their health is is improved, their their jails aren't full of those sort those people within those those nations. So it's it's evidence. But it is our basic fundamental human right to be able to govern ourselves. And that's the, that's the thing that's been taken from us and not given back. Yep, they don't take our children anymore. And they might, they take them in other ways, of course. Um, the um, out of out of home care for our mob is just out of the roof. But, you know, Snake and others are doing a wonderful job in advocating for that space. But our jails are still full of young people. Yep, because that's the war that's still waged, waged against us. But... I think the evidence is there. I think that it's our basic human right to be able to govern ourselves. And then and then when this country is ready to sign treaties with uh, our mob, that they actually sovereign to sovereign treaties. So that, that's what drives me, Larissa. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about how to better deal with at-risk youth, the importance of culture and connecting young people with their culture. And just reminded hearing you speak then about the importance of our our nationhood and the vitality of our our um, culture in terms of that. But we've seen some incidences over this year, particularly in Western Australia, where cultural heritage sites have been destroyed, showing the weakness of those laws. And I was just wondering your thoughts and reflections on the need to better improve those um, heritage protection laws and perhaps um, your thoughts on what we need to do more broadly uh, to have people better understand and appreciate the importance of Aboriginal culture. 
Look, I think there's a, a couple of things. One is that, um, once again, um, the laws are very weak around protection because they're seen as being Aboriginal heritage. You know, a 46,000-year-old human occupation site has got to be got to be important to the human story, not just our story, not just our heritage. It's got to be seen as being important to the whole human journey. And when it's not, it becomes uh, just an Aboriginal thing. Uh, it's an Aboriginal site of importance. Well, yes, it is a site of importance, and it's, it's absolute desecration by blowing it up. And I'm glad people from Rio Tinto lost their jobs, but I'm saddened that people didn't see it for what it was it was a part of our human journey on this planet. And when it becomes, when we become important as a part of that journey, I think people will think twice about wanting to destroy what is their heritage is just as much as ours. But until people are really punished for it and, and, and have to, you know, give up whatever they have to give up and governments get strong about things. I mean, WA is just a state that has gone crazy on mining royalties and they'll do anything to protect the mining industry. We need to demand a, a, a better deal from, from governments and um, I think in this case the Commonwealth also has a responsibility because constitutionally they have a responsibility to for the betterment of, of our mob and they just can't let states and territories run wild over heritage laws and stuff and uh, they've, they've done it in Tasmania, they did it in the Northern Territory so they, you know, the, the Commonwealth can step in if they want but um, people have really got to see the, the true value in their hearts about what's ours and, and what's theirs as well. I mean, it's we've got the oldest living cultures in the world. I mean, people should be learning from that, not blowing it up and destroying it. So that's my thoughts anyway. That's a lovely piece of wisdom to leave us with. Thank you so much yet again for coming by and joining us on Speaking Out. Uh, always, always a pleasure and, um, and it's great always talking to, uh, to you, Larissa. So thanks for having me on. Dennis Eggington is the CEO of the Aboriginal Legal Service of Western Australia. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Breaking down barriers within the Australian legal system has proved a long and often traumatic experience for Indigenous legal professionals. But with an increase in First Nations representation within the sector, is change more likely now than ever? Newly appointed CEO of the Law Society of New South Wales, Sonia Stewart, will join me shortly. Right now, though, some music from Emily Waramara. Here she is with her take on the coloured stone classic, Black Boy. To learn about life and how his people lost their way He was very stubborn, he was just a child And now it's like 
That's Emily Waramara with Black Boy. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio.
The Law Society of New South Wales has appointed UN woman Sonia Stewart to lead its organisation, which represents over 35,000 solicitors across the state. Sonia is the first woman and first Indigenous person to take on the role with the Law Society. Her appointment comes at a crucial time with Indigenous social justice issues now firmly back in the public consciousness. Sonia's career has so far seen her work across state and Commonwealth governments, including as Deputy Secretary within the New South Wales Department of Premier and Cabinet. She also has extensive experience in the legal profession and not-for-profit sector. So what does she hope to achieve in her new role? To find out, Sonia joins me now. Sonia, welcome to Speaking Out. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks very much, Sarissa, and thanks for having me. Well, since it's the first time we've had you on, I wondered if you could share with us what shaped your worldview growing up. Yeah, of course. I said family really shaped my worldview um, when I was growing up and particularly, you know, a belief uh, in, in me and that I could be whatever I wanted to be um, if I worked really hard and their aspirations for me. So that really shaped me growing up. And why did you decide to study law? So, um, yeah, nobody had really gone to uni in my family and I thought about what I really liked doing and I liked helping people and solving problems. And so uh, I thought about the law and I also did accounting. I like numbers. And I also picked it uh, because it was really hard. As you know yourself, you had to work really hard and get some um, good marks. So they're the reasons why I chose law. And you worked for ATSIC early in your career, which was quite an important organisation for people of our generation, getting a start into the public service and our professional lives. And I was just wondering if you could share with us what that period was like and what you learnt from it. Yeah, it was an amazing, not only period of my life, but I think in terms of, um, you know, for, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across our country, I learned so much. It was the first sort of real job that I had when I finished law school and finished university. I think when I reflect on it, Larissa, there was really two things that I learned. One of them is around the importance of self-determination for our people. And the other thing is around doing things with legacy and impact. Yeah, I've got a little yarn about that if you want me to go into it, but they're the real things I learned about how to work in complex organisations, working with your people, for your people, but the importance of self-determination, how to use power and how to have impact. Well, I think we'd like to hear the little yarn. <laughs> okay. Um, so I got to work with you know, so many amazing people at, at SIC and you know, these were people, um, you know, we always say, don't we, the risk that we stand on the shoulders of those that went before us and these were the people who did that across Australia and in their communities. But one in particular had huge influence on me was Commissioner Steve Gordon who would often call me from uh, the mission out at the Warrener and he would say to me, what are you doing for our people today, my girl? And when he thought that I wasn't doing enough, he would talk to me about what was happening. He would call it Dodge at the Mitch, and he would uh, explain to me in, in some detail what he thought I should be doing. And I was in the city here in Sydney, and he would say, you know, you're that princess in the tower. What are you doing for our people today, my girl? And, and that really inspired me and challenged me to think about you know, with the intellect we all have and with the care that we have and with the things that we have at our disposal, how can we have impact and legacy and, and being held to account 800 kilometres away by a very uh, respected Aboriginal man uh, really kept me on the straight and narrow at that thick as, as did many other people. 
He was a great character, known for his very bright suits. Absolutely. You could always spot him at an ADOC ball or any event. He was always the best dressed man and um, miss him dearly and acknowledge any members of his family that might be listening. And of course, that set you up in a way, that mindset for quite a long career in the New South Wales Public Service. When you look back now in the many roles you've had and the many things you achieved while you were there, what are some of the highlights for you, Sonia? I, I had a really amazing career in government. I worked in government for some 30 years, including acts against state government. And, um, you know, for me, I got to work on all of the levers, whether that was policy or program or regulation. In terms of, you know, the absolute highlights, I think it's working with people when they reach their potential, whatever that potential might be, and, and learning from them and coaching and mentoring them. Uh, but I've also done some amazing things, things that are really highly visible. And I uh, walked past the War Memorial Hyde Park. I was responsible for overseeing its construction. You know, I walked down Martin Place here in Sydney and see the memorial to the Lynch siege victims, people who lost their lives uh, in that tragedy. And, you know, I, I led a team and worked with the families on that sort of memorial. The things like Australia Day, where 60 million people around uh, around the world look at our country and how uh, we're working together, you know, between First Peoples and, and Australians on Australia Day to Invictus Games. And then I've done things that are less visible, like piloting family violence, legal service to women, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And they might be less visible to people, but they have a very long legacy and impact. And then things that aren't really visible at all and, and working behind the scenes, you know, learning from people, working with people. So I've had, I've done some um, amazing things and, and I've learned a lot from people and, I, and, you know, I've had a really interesting career and I'm very grateful for it. You have already achieved so much, but clearly you're up for another challenge. What made you want to take on the role of CEO of the Law Society? Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I'm CEO of the Law Society here at New South Wales and, the thing that really resonated with me, Theresa, was when I looked at um, what is the vision of this organisation and it's around leading the profession, serving the members and ensuring a just legal system. And it's only, you know, week five for me, but when I started, I had some sorry business and, you know, my country down the coast, um, shout out to all the UN mobs who might be listening, you know, was, was burning. And then around Black Lives Matter and this resonated around the rule of law. And if people go and have a look at that, there's so much important tenets to our society, not just, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander society, but broader society about the rule of law. So those values and that vision about ensuring a just legal system and leading a profession that's so honourable to do that really resonated with me and, and that's why I wanted to take up the role. What are some of the challenges you see facing the legal profession at the moment? So we're a really diverse profession here in New South Wales and I think that diversity also... Um, you know, reflects the risk across the whole of Australia. So you have people, and we have 36,000 members, you have people that are in relatively small or medium practices, you have in-house counsel, you have people who work in fairly large corporations and work in government and everything in between. So I'm really listening at the moment to our members and what challenges they're facing. Like members of a whole lot of organisations in society, it's around COVID-19 and not only the physical and, and, and mental challenges that that presents on an individual basis, but also huge service systems about witnessing of documents, about the way that the court works, the way that they can serve as clients. You know, lawyers tend to like to help people and solve problems. So what is the role of the profession in the economic revival of our country? And then on a very individual level, you know, I think there's a challenge that's facing, facing this profession, which is more prone 
to uh, you know being anxious and worried and depression around their own mental health and well-being. So they're the things that I'm listening to at the moment and how our organisation working with the council can, can um, assist them in this time. One thing I'm sure you've reflected on a lot is that when you and I went through law school, you could count Indigenous lawyers on both hands. But now, of course, there's a plethora of us around and more and more coming through. From your perspective, Sonia, what has the impact been of having greater representation of Indigenous people in the legal profession been? Yeah, I think it's had enormous impact and I think there's so much more potential and Larissa, you know, I, I really wanted to acknowledge that time we spent together at um, at university, and you know, along with your brother um, Jason and, and Terry Janke and others that went through that law school. And there was only a few of us there, and we could sit in the lounge room at the then Aboriginal Student Centre at High Street uh, if we so chose, and when we when we were able to catch up. But um, you know, I, I'm really mindful that we need more more of us, and. At the moment, I think last time there was a sort of survey done, there was 520 Indigenous lawyers across Australia. So that's less than 1% of the whole of Australia's legal profession. And when, or you'd be aware that we're a little bit under 3% of the, of the Australian population in, in terms of numbers. So getting that representation up, um, I think, is really important. And there's so much evidence not just in this profession but in others, about the importance of diversity inclusion and, and having people who understand systems, particularly, as you would be aware, the very um, unfortunate and unacceptable levels that our people find themselves in the criminal justice system as well as being victims of crime. So, you know, I think there's so much enormous potential and, you know, I'm really, you know, looking forward to talking to you and, and others like Tony McAvoy in this space about what can we be doing to encourage more people in the profession. I was going to ask you that because, you know, we have a lot of our mob listen to the show and I was wondering if there is somebody out there who's thinking about um, studying law and not just our young people because a lot of our our older community members go back and study because they didn't get the chance to do it earlier on in their lives. What's your advice to them? Absolutely go for it. You know, I think it's an amazing degree, a law degree, and um, by the time you've um, got to that point, you've already done a hell of a lot of hard work, hard work to get there to back yourself in this and use supports around you. But the ability to analyse and synthesise information, to negotiate, to present, to see things from a system point of view and then really care about a client is so empowering. So I think back yourself, I would say, join membership organisations such as the New South Wales Law Society. I think that's really important. And not just because you're a member of a professional body, but also um, because of, you know, you can be involved in a whole range of things around mentoring and, and policy committees. And I just encourage so many people to do it, to seek the support they need and and to, um, you know, make the most of it because get to that point, as you said, people have gone through a lot of hard yards, Larissa, and, um, you know, just making the most of it and thinking about your own leadership shadow and the impact that you can have in this degree, I think is really powerful. Now, you've got the new job and I, I know you'll just be amazing at it, but I also just wanted to check in with you about another very important role that you have because you're also the chair of the Go Foundation and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that organisation and the good work that it does. Absolutely. And even when you're asking me about talking about this, that puts a big uh, smile on my face as just working as a CEO of the Law Society. So um, many years ago, in fact, it was probably around 10 years ago, Adam Goods and Michael O'Loughlin set up this foundation with a friend of theirs called James Gallison. And what they really wanted to do was improve educational outcomes for our people. And Michael and Adam, our people would know, had an amazing 
um, career in the AFL for the mighty Sydney Swans. And I'm just so proud of them, uh, Larissa, in terms of, you know, we only have probably two things we really own in terms of our brand and how we use our time. And they have chosen this to do this for young people. Uh, the other thing that I'm really proud of is that it's not just educational scholarship and funding. It's also, um, you know, what, what's the conditions for their success? So what are things that we could be doing in terms of mentoring people, um, you know, supporting them and, and providing them to access to amazing partners we have in our ecosystem? And then, you know, finally, I would say, you know, the focus on women, Larissa, like, you know, Adam and Michael were brought up by very strong uh, women and uh, ensuring that the majority of our scholarships that we provide the support we provided to young girls. So if anybody's listening, Larissa, um, who might know a niece or a nephew or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister, we're actually open at the moment in terms of our scholarships uh, and until the 22nd of October and really encourage people to go on the Go Foundation website. We're up to 532 scholarships and counting and it's a great organisation to chair and a great, great board. Well, just finally tonight, it's clear you love a challenge and what most people would find a fairly stressful job. And you've got a really full plate between the CEO position and chair of the Go Foundation and all the other things you fit in. Can you share with us what your strategies are for looking after your well-being? So I always try to just have, a, I don't call it a like a lot of work-life balance, I call it a seesaw, so being mindful of where I am on the seesaw, I'm having a very good, loving relationship at home and uh, who, who is the CEO of the house, is, uh, and you would know that person I'm talking about, being kind to myself and having really good friends around me and being kind to myself, having that support around me at home and having people like you in my life and our friendship group is really important to me. So I wanted to acknowledge that too. Oh, Sonia, thank you so much. And thank you for being with Speaking Out. Sonia, we're wishing you all the best for your new role and thanks for dropping by Speaking Out this evening. No worries. Thanks, Larissa. See you soon. Sonia Stewart is the newly appointed CEO of the Law Society of New South Wales. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. Artists provide us with different ways of seeing the world and our history, and a new book gives us new insights into our colonial history. Dr Fiona Foley is an internationally renowned visual artist who recently had a 25-year photographic retrospective titled Who Are These Strangers and Where Are They Going? She is currently a lecturer at the Queensland College of Art at Griffith University and has just released a new book, Biting the Clouds, A Butchula Perspective on the Aboriginal's Protection and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act, 1897. Fiona, welcome back to Speaking Out and congratulations on the book. Thanks, Larissa. Always good to be on your radio program. Now, uh, the book's genesis is that it came from work you did around your PhD. Why did you decide, as somebody who's already got a very successful career as a visual artist, to go down that PhD pathway? I think I was inspired by a colleague um, back in 2014 and I, 2015 was a bit of a crossroads for me and I thought why not try and upskill and go into academia because, you know, the arts world had been hit by the um, global financial crisis. I just thought it would be a huge challenge to myself to undertake a PhD and during 
three years of doing that, it was a level of thinking that I hadn't engaged with before as an artist. So it really helped consolidate ideas that I had existing in relation to that historical policy in Queensland. But to write about it was a really different scenario that I'd ever encountered before. It's really interesting to hear you say that because I think one of the reasons I've always been drawn to your work is that it, it feels like it's incredibly powerful intellectually and here you are taking time out to sort of even think more deeply about some of those things. I mentioned the book as a translation of your PhD, but it does really, that sort of sells it short. Um, the book is, reads much more like a personal essay. There's no feel of a thesis about it and, of course, engages with your broad range of artwork. What was the process like for you of translating what was that really academic process into a book that's really accessible for a general audience? It was, uh, at the time I was living in Lismore, so sometimes I describe it as a Lismore fog. The first two years, was uh, I felt like I didn't really know what I was doing, but it all consolidated in the third year when I actually started to um, work out what was going into each chapter. So there's six chapters in the, in the book. And I wanted to talk about state and church through two principal people uh, who were in those uh, fields, uh, Archibald Meston, the first protector of Aborigines, and the other key figure was Ernest Gribble, who was a Anglican minister who set up the first mission at Begimba Creek. And I just tried to imagine life through the way that they were thinking about how they were going to solve the Aboriginal problem, which was at the time opium addiction, and wean people off that addiction. So I started to look into their lives much more um, closely and try and understand where they were coming from. And then also talking about my own work in relation to that and how there is still a silencing that goes on in this country. And that's seen in our curriculum. And earlier this year, I was watching the drum and Aileen Morton Robinson stated on that, that there are no critical race studies in this country and I just find that astounding that we still are grappling with race politics in this country. We still can't get to the basis of truth-telling. So every time I speak about opium in the state of Queensland, I'm speaking to people who have no knowledge of this history. And since the book's come out just only recently, I'm finding that more and more people are discovering this for the first time. So I just think it's really important to talk about this hidden history that affected so many people's lives in Queensland. Obviously, you'd been aware of that to start to uncover those histories. As you pulled the layers off and went into your research and have now transformed that into a book, what were the things about the operation of that Aboriginals Protection and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act that surprised you the most? Well, one of the surprises was that Archibald Meston was heavily influenced by eugenics theories coming out of London. And so he brought those ideas across to Queensland and wanted to isolate Aboriginal people. But one of the more interesting aspects of this legislation was that it was amended in 1901 and there were new laws introduced 
to outlaw Chinese and Aboriginal people marrying and having children. And that was because Europeans in Queensland were afraid of an alliance between Chinese and Aboriginals and uprising against white patriarchal society in, in the state. And I just thought this is how fearful they were of Aboriginals and Chinese coming together. They wanted to racially always have the upper hand. So I think for me that was interesting that they legally stamped out intermarriage between these two races. There's a lovely theme of clouds throughout it and not surprising as a visual artist, you have a very strong visual motif through your writing and the title itself is a reference to taking opium and there's a chapter titled Out of the Sea Like Cloud that has a very special cultural meaning for you. Can you tell us about that motif? Yeah, well, it was a play on words and when I first um, understood there was a euphemism for being let's just say, high on opium, which is biting the clouds. I just thought I could run with that. The uh, Botchler people had a song that has been handed down for 250 years when they saw Lieutenant Cook sail past on the endeavour with Sir Joseph Banks. And the first line in that song is, out of the sea like cloud, and they were talking about the sails of the endeavour. So there were all these beautiful poetic correlations related to clouds and then I went searching a little bit and magically they would just appear so each chapter has a reference to clouds and I thought this is a beautiful way to tie this all together through the through that imagery of clouds and of course on the cover we have two motifs one is the opium poppy that is growing in Australia at the current time for a pharmaceutical company but also in the also in the sky, there's beautiful billowing grey clouds and I just thought that has to go on the, on the um, cover of the book. That was an image I took when I was in Tasmania making a film. So, yeah, it all tied together really succinctly, I think. Throughout the book, of course, what's really clear is your sense of your identity, the obligation you feel as the traditional owner of your country and your embrace of the regeneration of your language. I wonder if you could share your thoughts on what that regeneration of your language has meant to you, because, of course, your mother played a big part in that as well. Yeah, she spent 20 years researching bachelor language from a lot of different archives and collated a bachelor dictionary we refer to it in 1996 and then she did a publication in 1997 and that publication sold out so we weren't able to um, you know easily access that uh, the broader community wasn't able to easily access that for 23 years so really my sister Melissa Foley instigated um, the republication of that dictionary in uh, the International Year of Indigenous Languages in 2019, last year. And so that publication also underpinned the film that I made last year and was able to bring on Teela Watson, who used the dictionary to create a new song version in our bachelor language of that encounter with uh, the Endeavour in 1770. So it's played a major role, like Mum's work underpinned my work last year through making that film. And I just think it's such an important resource if we can tap into that a lot more. And I know National Parks and Wildlife 
on Fraser Island are keen to implement, you know, bachelor language words for our place names like Takiwuru at Indian Head. So that's an ongoing process for us and the Bachelor Aboriginal Corporation to reintroduce those names back into the landscape. And, it, you know, it's, it's never-ending, really. I mentioned, and it's clear in how you speak, that you do take your responsibilities as a traditional owner of your country you know, very seriously and really engaged with your traditional lands and that responsibility. I was wondering what your reflections are. We've seen so many examples recently of the fragility of heritage protection for our mob, Uh, caves being destroyed, sacred trees being destroyed. From your perspective, what are your thoughts on on how we should be um, perhaps being more proactive about the protection of that really special culture? Well, for us on Fraser Island or Gari, um, you know, one of those things uh, that's uh, really hard for us as a people is seeing the um, killing of our dingoes on the island. And so for us, it's sometimes a living animal species, the destruction of their, you know, ha- habitat in a way because they've been caught by tourists to come and beg for food and I think that's very difficult for us that habitation of those animals as an apex predator where they've been um, too familiar with tourists and it's been to their detriment so we grieve the loss of those animals on a regular basis when they're put down by National Parks and Wildlife and so I think there are so many facets to Aboriginal culture where it's really impacted us psychologically and emotionally as a people when we face destruction of, you know, either our sacred sites, our um, beautiful old trees or, you know, live living species today. And I just think it's a perpetual combat that we go through as a colonised people with the coloniser. And this conversation is ongoing and never-ending and it does weigh heavily on all of us and when we lose uh, beautiful aspects of our culture in a you know in our symbi- symbiotic relationship with, with these with this environment I just think that it impacts all Australians really but it has to be taken up you know this also voice has to be given by non-indigenous Australians who have similar concerns it can't this cannot just weigh heavily on Aboriginal nations. Your book is a strong critique of race relations in Australia and your your body of artwork has really engaged with those ideas and on the aspects of human rights and um, self-determination. I was wondering what the Black Lives Matter movement and the moment we've seen now that it's really put a spotlight on issues in Australia has meant to you. Oh, it's meant a great deal to me and I just think that in the Indigenous scholarship, women really are at the forefront in, from my perspective and there are so many interesting voices I'd like to hear and so I've been proposing a project um, at Griffith University this year called Reason and Reckoning New Aboriginal Scholarship in the Creative Arts and Writing and underpinning that project title really is the Black Lives Matters movement and also Aboriginal deaths in custody in Australia. 
So the project is underpinned by Black Lives Matters and Aboriginal deaths in custody. And what I'm finding is that I would really like to open up a space in the academy where we can have deep and meaningful conversations with people who are across uh, this as a, as a politics, as uh, race politics, and I just think it's really important to have these conversations right across the country within higher education and opening up that space where we can have these uh, various voices and concerns brought to the fore. Just finally tonight, COVID-19 has challenged us all in how we engage with each other and how we work. What have you learned about yourself during this extraordinary time? As an artist, I'm quite used to working in you know, isolation because you're, when you're freelancing, you're mostly working from home. So it hasn't been really disruptive to the to the way that I work. It's been truly really encouraged me to, um, you know, hunker down and do some of the best work that I've ever done. And lucky for us, congratulations again on the book and thank you so much for dropping by speaking out this evening. Thanks, Larissa. Always good to talk. Dr Fiona Foley is a bachelor woman, a visual artist and is a lecturer at the Queensland College of Art at Griffith University. Her new book, Biting the Clouds, is being launched next week and is available through the University of Queensland Press. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we celebrate NADOC Week 2020. Always was, always will be. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. 